Today we're going to be in Luke 22:47, and Lord willing, we'll finish up the rest of Luke 22. We saw the last time the beginning of the tough times for the disciples, how things just starting to change, and how Jesus prepares them largely through his example, his own example. Today we're going to see the circumstances surrounding Jesus' arrest and the disciples' subsequent failure in succumbing to the temptation to self-preservation. Verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come out to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. In context, we saw uh, two Sundays ago that the disciples failed to watch and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. They failed to guard against the temptation of self-preservation. Now Jesus was being arrested and the disciples are now spiritually unprepared to respond to this present crisis. And it's great to see the disciples' mistakes and hopefully we as believers learn from those mistakes because honestly, it's the same thing with us. If we don't follow the instructions from our Lord, if we're not watching and praying, when a crisis happens, we're going to be unprepared. And I'm sure many of you have experienced that in your own life. I have. And I say to myself, gee, I wish I would have devoted a little more time to prayer regarding this issue. But it was common in that culture for any disciple to kiss his teacher as a sign of love and homage. One day, the world will have to do that to the Son of God. Psalm 2 is great. Uh, Verse 12, it says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Kiss the Son. In Hebrew, that was an expression which meant to, it was an act of homage and submission. And I've said this before, you either will worship Jesus one day out of obligation, but you don't have to do it if you do that out of adoration now. But here it's done, this kiss is done hypocritically. Jesus meant harm, not good. In verse 47 and 48, we see this kiss of death. Judas uses this kiss to signal the mob to take the correct person in the dark of night. The kiss of death. If you've been on the earth for more than a few years, I'm sure you've experienced somebody with the same duplicity as Judas. In Matthew's gospel, it says first that Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and then he kissed him. How phony is that? Well, people will kiss you to your face, say nice things about you, and then stab you in your back. That is a reality of life. Let's talk about this for a little bit. When I say that, who comes to your mind? Now, don't say it out loud, please. And I hope it's not me. But everyone has a name or a face that comes up when we speak about this. And unfortunately, it may even be another Christian. Should we forgive our betrayers? 
using Jesus as an example? The answer is yes, as we will see a little bit later in Jesus' example. In verse 49 and 50, we see this issue with the disciples see that's going to happen. They see that Jesus is about to be arrested. They ask him, is now the time to strike with the sword? And Peter doesn't wait for an answer. He just does it. Well, that's our beloved Peter. But the Bible tells us in John's gospel that Peter is the one who wielded the sword and cut off Malchus's ear. Malchus was the high priest's servant. But the disciples were also willing to do that, as we just saw in that that verse. Again, obviously they all missed the point of the sword that Jesus was speaking about two Sundays ago that we discussed. But Peter's mistake specifically is is that he was using carnal weapons instead of spiritual. Because of a lack of spiritual preparation, communion with God, watching and praying, he was unprepared to deal with the present crisis the way it needed to be dealt with. Because this particular event, what was going on, the arrest, it was foretold in the scripture. Jesus spoke about that. Uh, But also, this particular event had to deal with submission to the authorities. That's what God called for in this point in scripture. Now, Jesus' healing hands, the ones that he would touch and raise from the dead and touch and heal, at this point in history, those healing hands, he purposefully let them to be bound and submitted to them to his creation. In John 18.11, Jesus says this in response to the disciples' actions. He says to Peter specifically, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Now, there's an interesting uh, action there because remember, Jesus' attitude in the Garden of Gethsemane was, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. And he agonized over it. And of course, he submitted to the Father's will, but here he's very bold about, you know, he could have succumbed to his, you know, he could have succumbed to allowing them to defend him, but he didn't. He overrode them with his decision, put the sword back in its sheath. I will drink of the cup. So because of the prayer and the communion with the Father, Jesus, his attitude changed versus the disciples. Their attitude didn't change at all because they didn't follow Jesus' instructions in the garden. Because the disciples went to, to you know, take out the sword, and on top of that bad decision, when that didn't work, they fled. So they compounded one bad decision over another because they weren't watching and praying. Jesus told them to do that. As far as the, um, the portion about the, where Jesus speaks about the angels, uh, in another portion of Scripture, Jesus says that he could command 12 legions of angels. I have the power to do this. He says, I don't need you guys to pull your swords out. I could do something that's far more effective. Well, let me give you an idea of the power that that would wield. Number one, one angel, the Bible tells us, wiped out 185,000 enemy soldiers. That's just one angel. One stroke and he he slayed them all. Uh, A legion comprised of about 3,000 to 6,000 troops. 3,000 to 6,000, multiply that by 12 legions, you get about 72,000 angels that Jesus could have like that, called down to, to, to release him. But he didn't do that. Because Jesus didn't judge pre-cross. That wasn't his mission. He came as the lamb first. So you see that, that continuity there. Jesus never took a life. Now, I read, unlike the Gospel of Thomas, I read the Gospel of Thomas. I was like, well, what are these apocryphal books all about? Bell and the Dragon, Maccabees, um, you know, the Gospel of Thomas. And I guess now... 
they were kind of a waste of time, except for what I'm going to tell you now, only because of experience. But you have the Gospel of Thomas, a little background was basically, because there was actually a, a, some dopey movie called, I think it was Stigmata, it was like a scary movie, and at the end they said, uh, you know, this is based on the lost gospel that the church is trying to suppress. Nobody's suppressing it. You can p- pump it up on the Internet and read it. But the Gospel of Thomas was a Nag Hammadi Egypt document. It was copied from Greek to Coptic. And there were so many copies of it, and they weren't copied word for word, that no two copies were alike. You could have two different copies and find that they mean something different. So there's an inconsistency there, unlike the scripture, which has thousands of copies, and they all agree with each other. But the biggest problem I have with the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas was that Jesus killed somebody in it. So that's my biggest problem. You know, you can talk about the intellectual reasons why it doesn't fit with the scripture, but Jesus got irritated with somebody. I read it years ago, but one thing that stood out in my mind is he killed somebody. That's bizarre, because it certainly isn't in harmony with the rest of the four Gospels. Jesus never took a life. He never used his power to to, uh, support himself. He only used his power to bless other people. So it doesn't go. Remember Sesame Street, and it had the four boxes and which one of these things doesn't belong the gospel of thomas kick it out okay verse 51 but jesus answered and said permit even this and he touched his ear and healed him well the bible says previously that all who came to jesus were healed here he heals even his enemies jesus said love your enemies now for a quick refresher, turn to Luke 6.27. 6.27. Under rules of the kingdom of life, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners... Uh, to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the highest, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. And we've studied that when we were in Luke 6. But this kind of goes back to the, the question that I posed before. How do you treat those who have harmed you? And honestly, eventually, you have to let it go. Sometimes there's a healing process involved and people have to process it and it takes some time. Um, You can't, something just happened, you can't shake somebody and and wrestle them down and say, you you have to forgive right now. It's it's a process that they have to go to, but you have to forgive those people. Now, a caveat here is if it's something so egregious, such as uh, if you let somebody babysit your kid and they harm your kid, Um, Would you necessarily next Saturday have them babysit your kid again? No. You could forgive them, but you'd have to build that trust up again. The Bible tells us that, especially as parents, we're supposed to have care and take care of our family. 
Uh, Romans 13, it could be something that crosses the line where someone is a wolf in sheep's clothing and they're victimizing people through crimes. Romans 13 says, well, maybe the authorities should know about that. But here you have a situation where uh, Jesus takes probably the worst person and he forgives him. So he took the worst case scenario and he forgave him. But what about us? Um, and I, I think it's worth going on a little tangent here. If you read Ecclesiastes, if you turn Ecclesiastes 7, 21 through 22, only two verses, but actually it's so, this is probably one of my favorite scriptures. Ecclesiastes 7, 21 through 22. He says, also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. For little skirmishes in our lives, little things that people do to us, we, we get so offended when somebody does something that hurts our feelings. But honestly, and I'll tell you what, the scripture is true in all situations. I look at this and I say, I've offended people. I've hurt people. And you know what? I would like people to forgive me. Or for years later, people say, well, that Joe, you know, he... Uh, give him the benefit of the doubt that he changed and maybe he's not like that anymore. So Jesus says, what you want people to do for you, you do for them also. We should always try to think the better of each other because you know, in some point in time, even with your mouth, you've hurt somebody through gossip or, or backbiting. Okay, but again, Jesus is our example. Eventually we have to just let it go. In verse 52, going back to Luke, you see this healing of Malchus's ear. And this healing was one of, the, well, one of the last miracle performed by Jesus prior to the cross. The hour of, is coming when the Son of God is going to be rejected by his own creation. And a few other scriptures, and these are some short scriptures that I want to jump back to. Uh, John 8, 42 through 44, three scriptures. Jesus said to those who didn't believe, he said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, because you are not able to listen to my word? You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And Jesus also says in John 14:30 that the ruler of this world is coming. He goes, I have to depart, and the ruler of this world is coming, and I have nothing in him. And what I'm trying to focus on really is where Jesus speaks about this, this hour. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Again, when the Son of God is going to be rejected by his own people and they're going to uh, torture him and, and murder him. But what we see is that only, the only preserving force in this world has been through Jesus Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit. The world system is ruled by evil. Many have viciously attacked the things of God, viciously attacked Christianity and don't even know why. Now, maybe it's because that Christians, you know, when you look at the political arena, when you look at the advances in technology and the biomedical field, Christians are a stumbling block. They're a speed bump to the world and laws that are designed to move us forward, supposedly, to make us progressive. Christians are in the way of unfettered abortion, partial birth abortion. 
stem cell research from fetuses, and we've discussed the difference between stem cells from fetuses and from your own bone marrow, and which one is much more effective from your own body would be. Uh, that's obvious in the medical field. Uh, we talked about a little bit about cloning and harvest, organ harvesting. There was actually a, a movie uh, called The Sixth Day, a Schwarzenegger movie, and <laughs> what would happen was they, it, was in, it was in the future, and they learned how to clone people. And what they did was they cloned like, you know, good physical specimens, and they made all these bodies, but they weren't alive, and they would hang them in these government meat lockers and keep them frozen. And what they would do is they would grow them to humans, right? But, and then they would take uh, kidneys or a heart or liver as needed for people who needed that stuff. It was, the movie actually showed, and I don't know if it could be done, but who knows, where if you actually were on your deathbed, they could download everything from your mind and put it in this, what they would call a blank, and put it in that person's mind, and you would live again. So in a sense, your essence, your mind would be immortal because you would ju they would just move you from body to body. It was a bizarre movie, but have you seen some of the advances in biomedical technology? And it is possible that uh, because of, of outrage from people of faith, you're playing God, this is like the Nazis, this is wrong. If it wasn't for Christians standing in the way, there's a good possibility we would be much more advanced. And actually, they're finding links to abortion mills and uh, parts from those aborted fetuses using them in biomedical research. So it's really disturbing what's even going on now, even before the whole cloning thing. So Christians uh, stand in the way, and you know what? We should be standing in the way of a lot of these advances. There's organizations out there, again, this whole thing about the, the, their father being the devil and the world system and the, and the power of darkness and the hour of darkness. There's organizations that will fight for the rights of Islam, Wicca, or even the satanic church, but they will fight against anything, a deep hatred for anything Christian. Um, in the, in the, the arts field, you have your avant-garde movement to get uh, these, these uh, artistic people to to tweak people of faith with taxpayer money. They have these displays in these museums. The one famous one was a, uh, a, a clear container of human urine, and they dipped a crucifix in it or a cross, and they took pictures of it. That's not art. That's, that's you know, it's sick is what it is, and it's really unsanitary. But um, And there's a lot more things that, that are like that, and it's just designed to, and they don't even know why they do it, but it's because they're motivated by satanic activity. Uh, plays. Uh, there was a portrayal, one play, where uh, Christ, they portrayed him as a homosexual, having regular homosexual relationships with his disciples. Uh, and again, it's just to tweak people of faith. They have this, this deep hatred and, and blasphemous attitude towards anything of, of a Christian nature. Every Easter for the last two years, um, the, the Da Vinci Code came out, and we, we debunked that, and a lot of people wrote books. But the guy still made millions of dollars because people wanted to read it. This year, the whole ossuary and the body of Jesus and the bones, I recently saw the interview with the guy who wrote the book on it, um, and I, I discussed it two weeks ago, and he said, yeah, yeah, you're right, we didn't find the bones. You know? So you have a box that says Joshua on it with no bones, and we found the body of Jesus. I don't, can't put one to the other. Uh, but it, it just goes on and on and on, and what you see is the spirit of the hour of darkness that started in the Garden of Gethsemane, is still alive and well in our society. Some of the crimes that are happening today are even more heinous. Um, I was reading about a woman who killed her husband, and that wasn't enough. 
she chopped him up into a hundred pieces and was eating him. She put him in a locker somewhere and she would eat him regularly for her meals. You know, it, and we just say, yeah, you know, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Well, but Joe, hasn't it always been like that? Well, when Jack the Ripper was doing what he did, society was, was scared. They were terrified of that. We look at it like, okay, what's next? You know, what, what article can I read next? And not only that, they make movies that glorify hacking people up into pieces. And it's, it's a total desensitization of our society to life. We're desensitized to life. It's not special anymore. But the conclusion in this whole section is that we see the first example of being spiritually unprepared. And it started with um, Peter's strike in, in retaliation. I want to read something that uh, how Wearsby kind of summarized this. I think he does a good job, so I'll just use his words. He says, why did Peter do this? For one thing, he had to back up his boastful words that he had spoken in the upper room and again on the way to the garden. Peter had been sleeping when he should have been praying. He was talking when he should have been listening, and he was boasting when he should have been fearing. Now he was fighting when he should have been surrendering. As Christians, we can also be spiritually unprepared, and this leads us to this, merging with the world. The hour of darkness, the power of darkness, the world is ruled by darkness. When we start to merge with the world, we compromise our walk. We're supposed to live in the world we're supposed to be salt and light, preserve the world, be a preserving influence, but we're not supposed to become a part of the world. We're not supposed to compromise. Um, and if we're spiritually unprepared, this will lead us to confusion, going with the flow, succumbing to pressure. And the only way to have that unwavering steadfastness is to have that, that um, regular communion with the Lord. In the next few verses, uh, we're going to cover, we're going to see, starting with the uh, trials of Jesus, starting with verse 54. It says, Then having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. And Peter followed at a distance. Now when he had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Then Peter went out and wept bitterly. What you have here is harmonizing the four Gospels. Okay, And, and that's what, when I teach from a Gospel, I always go to the other Gospels because they add some more details based on their vantage point. And when you take the Gospels together, you have a great picture of what was going on. So... Harmonizing the four Gospels, you have six trials that Jesus went before. The first one was uh, he went in front of Annas. Now, Annas was the deposed high priest. The Romans deposed him, I guess, because they couldn't work with him. So they kicked him out, uh, and they replaced him with his son-in-law, Joseph Caiaphas. This is historical. Uh, you can find this in history books. But Annas still wielded power. The people, people still liked him. And even though Caiaphas was kind of a, maybe a figurehead, but Annas was a, a strong force behind Caiaphas. So you had the trial before Annas, 
You had the trial then again before Joseph Caiaphas, and then you had the, his trial before the Sanhedrin, the council. They, they all would come together and convene. It would include high priests and aristocrats, and it was your, your, your governing body of the Jewish people. The fourth trial was before Pilate because they needed him for the death penalty. The, uh, the sceptership was taken away from them, according to Genesis 49.10. And then the trial went before Herod because Pilate really didn't want anything to do with him. And there was political reasons behind that. He sends him to Herod because he finds out Herod's in the area and, and Jesus comes from his jurisdiction. Hot potato, here you go, Herod, he's yours. Herod ends up sending him back to Pilate. And then we know from the story that Pilate has him crucified. But this particular trial that we're here before uh, talking about is, was before Caiaphas. I'm just going to touch on the rooster crowing. Uh, the rooster crowing. I used to watch those breakfast cereal commercials, and uh, you know they would always. Some of them had like the rooster crowing and the sun's coming up, and everybody wakes up happy from a nice sleep. But you look at that rooster as, as this, this. I don't even need an alarm clock. The rooster crows when the sun comes up. He gets me up, and then the rooster's done. Well, let me tell you something. It doesn't work like that. I don't know how many of you have grown up on a farm or something, but. Six years ago, I moved next to uh, my neighbor, Jim, who's a great guy. But he has six roosters, and those stupid things crow <laughs> early in the morning and all day long. And I said to my wife, I don't know if I'm going to make it out here. They're going to drive me insane. But eventually, you get used to those roosters, right? Uh, but anyway, there's a, what happens is you usually get a reprieve in the evening, and they start up again really early in the morning before the sun comes up. So this puts this event time-wise after midnight, but before sunrise, okay? And what I find amazing is the details in the scripture. And I don't know, maybe I'm reading into it. I'm using eisegesis instead of exegesis, but, you know, bear with me on this one. Jesus said that you will deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. And I believe the rooster probably crowed the first time. Peter was used to it. And when the, the rooster crowed the second time, it finally hit him. Sometimes people come over to my house and they go, is, are that, is that roosters out there? I don't even hear them, you know, but it, after a few times it clicks that there's a rooster crowing. So I, I think the, the detail in, this, in the scripture is just amazing. Um, but let's, let's, let's talk about this for a minute. Following the Lord at a distance. That's what Peter did. He followed him at a distance. I want to read to you just so there's no misunderstanding about the Greek word about Peter denying him. In the linguistic key to the Greek New Testament, it says this on page 208, about denying. The word used in the Greek is to say no, to deny. The two meanings are implicit, to refuse to recognize and to abandon, and deny solidarity with someone. So make no mistake, Peter denied Jesus. But you know what? I think too many Christians are, do, are guilty of doing that. I think many people kind of hold Jesus a little bit at, at an arm's distance. They don't want him to get too close. I don't want people to think I'm a Jesus freak. I don't want, you know, you know it's good if we kind of have a little distance between ourselves. And similar to Peter, if that's you, if you're a Christian and you hold the Lord at a distance, you won't have peace until you stop sitting the fence, as, as Peter didn't. If you continue in a double-minded approach to walking with God, you will be unstable in all of your ways, according to the book of James. And this will be reflected or show up in the following. 
Number one, how you treat your spouse and how you treat your children. A double-minded approach to walking with God will definitely show up in the family with the door closed and the windows and nobody else sees it. It happens in your own little home. And this isn't limited to men because there's women who can be just as harsh as men. Uh, you will treat your spouse badly and you will treat your children badly. That's the first place it will show up. Another place it will show up is what type of employee you are. I've spoke to people who, who go to job, to job, to job, and sometimes there's a good reason, but sometimes from their own lips they'll share with me, well, this boss was an idiot. Well, this boss doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, I left this job because I knew more than that boss. What's the common denominator there? Even if you do know more than your boss, and even if your boss is professional in some other ways, unless you start your own business, you're going to have a boss. And some things you're going to have to learn to deal with. When I go to work and I put on the uniform, I come in and each time, each day I could have a different boss, a different sergeant. And I don't always agree with what they say. They should be listening to me. I have the wisdom of God. I'm a pastor. Let me run the shift. It doesn't happen that way, though. Uh, but short of them giving me an immoral order or uh, an illegal order, I have to follow their orders. I've got to do my job. Sure, Sarge, what do you need, Sarge? And you know what that shows? That shows submission. Our society has such a problem with submission. Well, I'm not anybody's boy. Well, nobody's going to tell me what to do. You know, uh, I'm nobody's, you know, lackey. And that's the attitude that we have. And you know what we're doing? We're also raising a society of children that are going to be unemployable. They're so spoiled and they're so coddled that they're never going to get a job because every job that they go to, they're going to have a problem with their boss. So you know more than your boss. So your boss may be an idiot. But sometimes you just got to learn submission. And maybe sometimes that's what God wants you to learn. And you know what? A double-minded approach to walking with God Sometimes we'll show up in politics what you will accept from a candidate. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to say Democrat or Republican. That's not, please, I don't, I'm not going to go there. But what I'm saying is I've heard people say, I will vote for the candidate that lines my pockets. Is that really that, what that's so much important to you? And if you're a Christian and you're, you're ignoring the millions of aborted babies and the partial birth abortion and the social issues, but you're just voting for a candidate that lines your pockets, you're double-minded. There was a great article that somebody uh, gave to me, and actually I liked it so much that I put it, I put it out on the info table for anyone to take a copy of when you leave. It was in World Magazine, March 10, 2007, and it's called Single Issue Politics. It says, what a candidate believes about abortion tells us how he will treat other issues. So. It's almost like a litmus test. If your attitude is, eh, it's been going on for the last 40 or so years, I don't really care, that's a problem. That's definitely a problem. Attitude, um, it can, you know, double-minded approach to walking with God will show up in your attitude. General anger and frustration with life. Uh, and again, that rebellious mode. There's some people who have just a rebellious attitude. I mean, I have a job, I have two jobs, and both jobs I have authority as a police officer, and it kind of was cool in the beginning, but you know what, it gets old after a while. It gets old dealing with people, and they're always resisting your authority. Your mere presence with the uniform and the badge causes people to be unsettled. Now, and after 15 years, I can distinguish a little bit of nervousness from just attitude. I remind them of their father. 
I remind them of a cop who gave them the ticket. I remind them of their husband. People are just rebellious, you know. I pull, I pull up to the car, I announce myself, I smile. I'm a pastor, right? I see your license, registration, insurance. What's your problem? Whoa, we're getting off on the wrong foot already. I mean, that'll just, take, that'll just cause me to go back to the car and just start writing. I mean, no. But uh, it, it's just, there's just some people who are rebellious. And I've got to tell you, I'm not, a re, I'm not an authority junkie. I can't wait for the day that the Lord calls us home. And I don't have to make any decisions. I'm looking forward to that. I don't feed off of authority. But there's just some times where God wants us to uh, submit to authority. And some Christians will say, I don't do that. But they do that with their actions. It doesn't matter what you say as much as what you do. If you, if you live like the world in front of the world and you live like Christians in front of Christians, you're double-minded. I mean, that's just the, the epitome of the word. It's not okay. I was having a discussion with a brother who part of my conversation was your, your problem with your instability and the problems that you're having in life over and over again is because you continue to compromise. Just like Peter. This brother, was, he, he couldn't have peace in his life because he kept compromising. He wanted what the Lord had to offer, but he wanted to be in the world, and he kept going back and forth. And James is right. You'll be unstable in all your ways. And Peter, for a time, was very unstable because of his following the Lord at a distance. He had a double-minded approach to walking with God. In verse 61... And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, then you will deny me three times. Then Peter went out and wept bitterly. There's, um, there's an adverb in the Greek that is, is a very strong word. Peter was, you ever get that when you, when, you, when you cry or you've seen somebody cry and they're just hysterical and they can't catch their breath? I believe it all, the whole house of cards came down when Jesus looked at Peter. Peter, he was convicted, he was cut to the heart, he remembered what he said, and he, he was sobbing, and he probably couldn't catch his breath. Peter, you know, the guy with the sword, you know, guy, tough guy, right? He just wept bitterly. But the question is, what was this look that Jesus had for Peter? And why did it have such an effect on Peter? What was the look? Was Jesus' look to Peter, mm, you big jerk, you really did it now. I'm going to get you. Where like the three days are over, you know, I'm going to get you. I don't think that was the look. You're a big jerk. You're a failure. No, it wasn't any of those things. And incidentally, I'm amazed that people still talk to their children like that. That's shameful, how people could look at their children, little innocent sponges, and say, you're a failure. And people can talk to them like that. That still amazes me that people can do that. But that wasn't the look that that uh, Jesus gave Peter. I think the look was, I love you, Peter, and I adore you. That look had so much love in it. And Peter, that, it'll never change. Regardless of what you do, I'm always going to love you. When I was a kid, my teacher would say, words are good, but a picture is worth a thousand words. If you draw a picture, you can get so much out of that picture. But this look was worth a lifetime of study, the look that Jesus showed to Peter. You've heard the, the term, was it, whether a fictional story, the Helen of Troy story, the face that could launch a thousand ships. Well, this look, this face that Jesus had was a look that brought a sinner to repentance, to have him turn around 
and become an incredible pillar of the foundation of the early church. That's what that look did for Peter. In verse 62, Peter wept bitterly because his soul, being brought so far with Jesus, couldn't be at peace walking at a distance from him. And that's something where we need to examine our own lives. Are we walking at a distance and when pressured to self-preserve, flee from God? If somebody says to you, if you say, well, I'm a Christian, and somebody says, well, you're not one of those born-again Christians, are you? Are you tempted to say, uh, no? I kind of have to say it. I'm a pastor, right? But, so I, I, can, I got an easy one there. But some people are, are tempted to, to preserve and to be popular. Uh, there was, I'll tell you another quick story. I remember one time, at the end of our shift, we, we have these gas pumps, and we gas up the police cars. And it was me and another a younger officer. It was a few years back. And he would talk to me about being a Christian. He said he was a Christian. I remember he had come out to Calvary a few times. And, uh, but he wanted to fit in with the other officers. He wanted to fit in. And he had, always had a problem fitting in. Uh, and sometimes the more you try to fit in, the more you don't fit in. Another officer had pulled up and he was gassing his car. And he would, we would have a little banter. And it was lighthearted. He's a funny guy. But he would talk about being a Christian. And I would bust him back, tell him he was going to hell. No, I didn't tell him. That. <laughs> Maybe I did. But uh, so he turns to the younger officer and he says, hey, he goes, are you one of those born again Christians like him? And he goes, nah, I still remember the look on his face. He went, nah, and he turned his head. And, you know, we went back to what we were doing. You know, a year later, a year later, I was at the pumps again and I saw this younger officer. And I said, it's funny, his, there's a lot of irony in his name. I said, hey, bro. Um, I said, I was going to start talking. He says, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. He goes, I remember what I did. I can't believe I did it. I denied Jesus. Blah, blah, blah. He was like confessing, and I wasn't even a pastor yet. <laughs> but I wasn't going to say anything. But the funny thing is, it was that conviction. He was convicted, and he felt so awful about what he did. And he says, I'll never do that again. And I encouraged him to be strong. I encouraged him to, you know, to be proud of who he was. So, okay. On the other hand, though, many have, and there's a lot of reasons why people behave certain ways, Many have behaved traitoriously in their actions towards Jesus, but might be afraid of coming back to the fold because of a few reasons. Number one, maybe they're afraid that the Lord won't accept them back. Maybe they're afraid that they committed the unpardonable sin in denying him. And maybe they're afraid that the Lord will hold it over their heads all their life. But I'm here to tell you that's not true. If you've ever fallen into that category, uh, Romans 8 tells us that there's no condemnation in Christ to those who walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Uh, forgiveness is from the east to the west. Jesus didn't hold anything over Peter after he was restored. Usually the continuous penalty we face is from guilt or sometimes other people, but it's not from God. In 1 John 1.9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But, one, again, one little point to that is healing comes after the repentance. Unfortunately, in the modern church, a lot of times repentance is left out. On our side, to forgive people, we don't need a special signal or somebody to apologize. We just forgive. It comes from deep within, our, in, within, within us. But the person who's the offender, their job is to repent, is to turn from that sin, uh, you know, is to make it right. Unfortunately, in the modern church, a lot of people just believe, ah, enough time will pass, then they'll, they'll just forgive me. That's not the right attitude to have. 
The Bible even says that before belief comes repentance. You have to repent and believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So repentance is very important. So here's the second example of spiritual unpreparedness, denying the Lord and following him at a distance. Now, Peter wasn't a coward. You know, people do these commentaries and they can be very harsh with the disciples. Peter wasn't a coward. I mean, it took a lot of guts for him to pull that sword out. He was outnumbered. He was the only one pulling the sword out. The disciples were asking questions. He pulled it out. And you have the mob with lanterns and torches and probably some of them were Roman soldiers. Peter was going to get... It wasn't going to be good for him if, if Jesus allowed that to happen. So Peter was no chicken. Uh, let's, make that, let's get that straight. But when he realized he couldn't use what he knew to use, his physical prowess, he, he didn't know what to do. He had a crisis there. And again, there's two extremes when we deal with the disciples. Some people look at the disciples and elevate them almost to a god, god-like status. And from the scripture, you can see that that's not true. The other extreme is to denigrate the disciples and say they were foolish or they were cowards or this. And that's wrong, too, because Jesus chose them. He chose them to be his leaders and to start the church. So I think you, you have, it's got to fall somewhere in the middle. The disciples are a microcosm of society. He chose people, different occupations, different geographies, different walks of life, these disciples. So they're a microcosm of society. But they're also a picture of believers. We could see ourselves in a lot of these disciples. Um, you know, I, I could look at different things the disciples do and their mistakes and say, gee, I, I've done that, right? So they're, they're a picture also of believers. It is hard to be a Christian and know what to do if you're not praying and you're not in the Word and you're not following the Word. Just like Peter, if you're not praying and you're not in communion with God and you're not watching and praying, when you get into a situation that you can't control, you're going to say, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And at that point, it's too late. Okay? Now you're, you know, you better really start praying. And the reason is because we're not tapped into God as our source. Verse 63. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Now, our, our laws prevent us from being charged with the same crime twice. It's called the double jeopardy law. Here, Jesus, the son of God, the fix is in for him. He's not getting a fair trial. He's getting six trials. Um, it's a kangaroo court here. He's not getting a fair shake. Psalm 2, I think again, it's amazing what you can find in the Old Testament. Characterizes it great. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away the cords, their cords from us. So that sums it up pretty good. A few things out of this. Number one, people... Uh, may ask you, and if you know your Bible well, you'll find the deity of Christ. You may be questioned, well, when did Jesus ever say he was God? 
Well, here's another example. Not only did he say he was the Christ, the coming uh, anointed one, the coming Messiah, he also said he was the Son of God. Now, I couldn't answer that in the affirmative. If you ask me any of those questions, I would say negative. <laughs> That's not me. 2,000 years ago, that, that was his job. Uh, people try to do it today, but usually they come in the form of a cult leader, right? And the other thing is, it's funny because Jesus, it was limited what his response was to them. He said, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. There are some that want to engage you just for the sake of engaging you. Just for the sake of, and you could see, they're ready to talk as soon as you're done. They're not listening to what you have to say about God, about Jesus, about the deity of Christ. They're just looking for an argument. And that's where you're throwing pearls before a swine. But here, Jesus didn't go into, he, Jesus was great with teachings. Why didn't he just start opening up the scriptures and, and, and giving it to them? Because he knew that they weren't going to listen. They had their minds made up, and he's expressing that here in this passage. There's a lot of, a lot of history here, but the thrust of this section is that the disciples were spiritually unprepared to face the challenges ahead. But the good thing is that they were all restored, except for Judas, and that was his choice. They were all restored and became great pillars of the early church. So in closing, just one little thing about when I was a kid, Sam's going to like this one, <laughs> I had music class. And believe it or not, I played the trumpet and I played the tenor sax, but I wasn't any good at either one. So I won't do it up here. <laughs> but I remember one of the grades that I would get would be unprepared. And um, if I forgot my mouthpiece, which I often did, or I didn't practice the song, which I often did, I would be embarrassed in front of my teacher or my classmates because I was unprepared. However, here, the disciples are woefully unprepared in a situation with ramifications far worse than being in music class. You know, it's a confusing world. And if you look at the world and you observe what's going on in the world, there's more confusing solutions to confusing man's problems. And we think that we're so smart as human beings. But we will just fall into the same pot, into the same mix of foolishness if we are merging in with the world. But we need to be prepared. When we're prepared and we're constantly in communion with God, I notice that when I'm in, um, in communion with God and I'm prepared spiritually, people will come and say, hey, that was a good decision. And I just made it like that. But I made it because I've been praying on it for so long that God just, God just gave me the words. So it, it's a confusing world and it stands to reason that we as people of faith shouldn't be in the mix of the confusion. We should be spiritually prepared. Let's pray. Pot. <laughs>